0: Welcome to Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series was developed as a part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week's guest is Brian Edwards. He's the Chief Operating Officer of Mark Burnett's United Artists Media Group and One Three Media. He's worked closely with Burnett on a number of unscripted series, including Survivor and Shark Tank, as well as scripted productions, like History Channel's miniseries, The Bible, and the upcoming feature, Ben-Hur. Before joining Burnett, Edwards worked with a number of influential producers in Hollywood, including Jeffrey Katzenberg at DreamWorks. Edwards holds degrees in both journalism and law from the University of Texas, and he spoke on the UT campus on October 19, 2015, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome once again to Media Industry Conversations. Uh, Thanks to the TAs, uh, Tim Piper and Kyle Rather, as well as Cindy McCreary, my colleague in teaching this course. And thanks to the RTF department, as well as the Moody College of Communication. I want to take a moment to uh, give you a little background and welcome Mr. Brian Edwards to our class. He he is a graduate of both the journalism program at UT Mm -hmm. as well as our law school. So uh, I think you're the first graduate of both of those programs to visit us so you can have a little different perspective perhaps. He is currently the chief operating officer of United Artists Media Group. Which formed in 2014 by combining the entertainment assets of Mark Burnett and Roma Downey's Lightworkers Media Brand with Burnett's partnership with Hearst 1-3 Media. And uh, as we're going to talk about today, UAMG produces a range of content, including network scripted and unscripted series, award shows, commercials, as well as other branded content. Uh, So hopefully we'll hit on much of that territory. They have a pretty impressive list of shows uh, and beyond that they produce, and we will hopefully walk through a few of those as well, including... Little shows like Survivor and The Voice, Shark Tank, the miniseries, The Bible, and an upcoming feature, Ben-Hur. And so today we're going to focus on talking about everything from his career trajectory to his current roles and responsibilities at UAMG, his view on the current state of the media industries and especially unscripted television, as well as any advice that uh he can provide you or that you might want to ask in the Q and A session. So please join me in welcoming Mr. Edwards.
2: Hopefully you're all still applauding after we're done.
1: <laughs> so I've uh Tons of questions to ask, but let's just start with the really basic one: sure. of uh, how did you end up at UIMG? Where did, how did you get from UT to there? If you can. Tell
2: um, us. It was uh, completely an accident, which I hope is good news for everybody, because there's a lot of people who want to plan their lives out well in advance. For some people in some careers, like doctors and things, that can work really well. For most of us, the road gets a little bumpier. Uh, I had started my collegiate career at the California Maritime Academy where I was gonna be a deck officer on an oil tanker uh, and ended up uh, becoming a law school graduate from the University of Texas with four college stops in between. So there's no clear line of sight to anything. The um, uh, decision to go to law school was, for better or worse, was one that was generated by a combination of two events. I was a senior journalism major And my best job offer was to write obituaries for the Palestine-Texas Daily Herald for about $12,000 a year. That was option A. And option B was go to law school at the University of Texas. So I quickly weighed those up, and that wasn't that close of a call. No offense to the Palestine natives. (laughs)
0: Uh,
2: And law school led me back to Los Angeles partly because I just wanted to move back to California for a little while. I'm from California, Uh, partly because as a lawyer there were some interesting opportunities. And I happened to go to work at a place where I just liked the people the best, um, as it happened, there was an individual there who was a very uh, powerful entertainment lawyer slash litigator named Burt Fields, and that won't be a name most of you know. But um, you know, Burt's client list was little people like the Beatles and Dustin Hoffman and John Travolta and Tom Cruise and Paramount and Fox and on and on and on. So I got I fell into the Burt client base fairly quickly. Uh, so I became a, was known as an entertainment litigator, and my last litigation matter was for a guy named Jeffrey Katzenberg, who had a dispute with the Walt Disney Company in the late 90s, which was, for those of you of a certain age, uh, kind of a big deal at the time when Jeffrey was running the studio and then left after a somewhat acrimonious split with a guy named Michael Eisner. Um, so after that case was over, it was either a reward or a punishment, and I'm not sure which. Jeffrey offered me a job at DreamWorks, which I took. That's how I ended up at the studio. Uh, It was while I was at DreamWorks in 2004 that I met Mark. We did a show about boxing called The Contender for NBC, uh, which then ran for some years after that on on ESPN as well. So I knew Mark from that business. So after I left DreamWorks and started to – I did some independent film producing with a partner for a while and then joined Mark in 2009 – and when I joined him, he had you know three or four reality shows. That's what he, but he had bigger ambitions for his, himself and his you know his desire to tell stories because most people in our business were you know ultimately we're all storytellers of one kind or another. Uh, and so you know over time we expanded into scripted more heavily into branded content. We've done a couple of movies now, including Ben Hur, uh, as Lisa mentioned, uh, which will be out next year. Um, so it's you know it, it's been mostly relationship driven. You know you put yourself in a good position you as a business person at least if you're uh, you know at least somewhat foresightful and you know you're you're paying attention to trends and how to get in front of things uh, you know that's that's where a certain amount of success comes from but ultimately it comes from your relationships you have do people trust you because whether you are talent or work with talent, there has to be that kind of a relationship because ultimately any in this look, this is true of, I don't care if you're in the bottle cap business ultimately businesses are largely relationship and trust-driven. Um, some relationships come out of these moments uh, where people I've met through the university helped me or I have tried to help over the years from time to time where I could. Uh, but, it, sorry, long-winded way of saying there was absolutely zero career path that all happened by accident, <laughs> and I wish I had thought of any of it in advance, but I didn't.
1: So were you doing work predominantly as legal counsel at these various companies or what kinds of responsibilities did you have sort of moving through this trajectory?
2: Yeah, when I started at DreamWorks, they actually offered me the job as head of legal affairs, which is basically being in charge of all of the business, the, the business of contracts for the studio. Um, and that was back when DreamWorks was bol- was one company privately held by Steven Spielberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and David Geffen, uh, who briefly attended this institution, actually. Um, and then over time, once then we did a thing called an IPO. I don't, know, well, I don't want to speak too much of business that people aren't interested in. But we spun off the animation company in an initial public offering or IPO in 2004. At that point, I became the COO of privately held DreamWorks, which was still owned and it was still owned by the three guys, but it was Steven's business. So at that point, I was more in charge of just the the, the non creative, all of the non creative aspects of the studio, in essence. Um, Stephen, obviously, and then later his partner, Stacy Snyder, were running the creative and then um, left there, as I say, in 2007 and formed a partnership with a guy in New York and we made a few small independent movies that probably most of you have never heard of, um, a picture called Thirteen about guys playing Russian roulette for money. That was fun. Um a Lindsay Lohan movie, which made me want to play Russian roulette, <laughs> uh, and then a couple of others, uh, and then was, and we can talk about the independent film business if you like. It's not the most fun in the world, it, unless you really, really love it, and that's just what you want to do, no matter how much abuse you take. It wasn't really for me ultimately. Uh, And then it happened that Mark was looking to expand his business, and so I joined him, and then we kind of built it up from there.
1: Yeah, so let's go from there. What kinds of roles and responsibilities have you had or do you have now as you've sort of morphed with the company?
2: Well, Mark initially, uh, oddly enough, needed um, uh, two things. He had had some advice. He'd been trying to sell his business for a while. This is 2009. And he had paid, I don't know, several million dollars to people like Bear Stearns and some fancy lawyers to try to help him do it. And none of them had figured out a way to do it because they weren't paying attention to some basic issues. So once we solved those issues, which took about a week, I'm not trying to grab, I mean, they were just being dumb about it. And once we undumbed the process, uh, we made a deal with the Hearst Corporation to sell half of part of Mark's business to them so he could have an initial partnership with Hearst. That's what became 1-3 Media. So... Mark at that time owned Survivor and Apprentice separately, um, and then One Three Media was formed, which was the Voice and Shark Tank, and now basically everything else we do. And then that's what we rolled up together with Lightworkers to create United Artists last year. Um, I'm invo- now. I'm involved in everything. I mean, it's uh, you know, uh, creative, operations, business, strategy, mergers and acquisitions, you name it. It's it. It's not that big of a company. We have. 32 full-time employees, I think. Um, all in
1: L.A.? or Yeah,
2: all in L.A. Uh, but at any given moment in time, the payroll's a couple thousand when you're running, you know, a couple hundred people in some jungle for Survivor and a couple hundred people for, you know, a show like Apprentice, 150 people for Shark Tank. The Voice is a massive operation, that thing. You know, we do 90 hours of that a year. Uh, so that's basically standing up year-round like Survivor is. So, we, you know, some things, you know, like the Survivor teams and now the Voice teams, they run so efficiently that they don't really need... Uh, they don't need a lot, right? And you try to set shows up so they can function as independent units. Um, startup shows take a lot of attention. Scripted takes more attention for different reasons. So it's uh, there's sort of nothing I'm not involved in now.
1: So are, do you hear pitches? Do you develop things internally? How, are, how involved are you with the development process?
2: Um, the development team uh, reports to Mark and, and theoretically to me. I try to actually guide it a little bit but not get in the way too much. Um, Ultimately, on the unscripted side, at least, you know, nobody's going to have a better barometer of what's good than Mark Burnett. So I, there's, you know, one of the important things to know is what you don't know, uh, and so I don't worry about that too much. I, there are certain things. <laughs> I was telling a story beforehand about the cookie lady who wanted to do the show about cookies, and it's like reality television is a little more complicated than everybody thinks. I admit I was when I, you know, I worked for Steven Spielberg. Man, I thought, you know, that that was art, and this reality TV stuff was like, well, it's nice, but it's cameras, and that's about it. Survivor came about for a couple of reasons. For example, and this will show you some depth of what goes into it. Um, there was a French TV show called The Family Robinson, which was literally some family on an island. Like like a follow doc, as we would call it now, which just sort of cameras on family, basically. Uh, and Mark adept wanted liked the format and wanted to develop it some more, so he optioned the format, and then he brought in elements of two of his favorite books, Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad and Lord of the Flies by somebody else whose name I can't remember. <laughs> but Mark wanted to; he was always interested in how thin the veneer of civilization could be. I mean, this is a guy who, after high school, and you know, he's a, from the East End of London, ended up in the army and fought in the Falkland Islands War. And then was stationed in Northern Ireland, which is sort of ironic because his now wife, Roma Downey, was a hardcore uh, uh, Irish Unionist back in the day, and actually has a cloak with a bullet hole through it where she nearly got shot by an IRA member one time. Um, so you know, so Mark's sitting there synthesizing very complex literature and trying to figure out how to do that in a way where the construct and the casting is what creates the conflict, because ultimately, story is about conflict. I don't care if it's. Dr- You know, think of a funny movie like The Hangover, right? And you guys all know this. It's all conflict all the way through. You just, you cut it differently, you edit it differently, you write it a little differently, but conflict is the source of all the drama, all the comedy, the aspirational stuff, everything. And the challenge of unscripted to do it properly is you can't tell people what to say. So in some ways it's actually harder because the format has to naturally create the conflict moments to drive the story forward. So it's been an interesting experience on that front. Scripted is, you know, a totally different animal because there's different buyers, um, you know, different budgets, different production processes, different production timing. Uh, it takes different skill sets from a lot... Of, not not from everybody on the, on the org chart, but from a lot of people. Um, and then the branded business is different altogether. We're doing, you know, we've done like the People's Choice Awards for years and run the peopleschoice.com website for Procter & Gamble. We've extended our branded business now, so we're doing a a thing called America's Greatest Makers with Intel, and it's literally an Intel-funded show that's designed to promote their new uh, chip, the Curie, as they call it, which is way smaller than the button here on my sleeve, obviously. But they want to use it for wearable uh, wearable technology. So it'll be... um, what is known in our business now is a true cross-platform piece of content where the digital and the linear television pieces actually are interoperable. They're, they're not like making a TV show and then doing this stuff down here for the internet. They're designed to be uh, effectively co-equal and coexist and have the whole thing tell the ultimate story of the process of who can create the best wearable technology using the security chip. So the businesses are all somewhat different. You know, Top line, it's all about ultimately about story and about people because that's what we care about. As much as anything else, we care about human beings and what happens to them and the hopes and the aspirations. And that's what you're trying to get across, whether it's scripted or unscripted.
1: Maybe you could walk us through, you talked a little bit about Survivor, but uh, another reality project that you've sort of been involved telling us sort of how you're involved with it, but also maybe a little bit about the reality landscape as it's currently... (laughs)
2: <laughs> uh, sure. You know, we're, uh, there's a show that I can't talk about yet in specific because it hasn't been announced, but it was a straight-to-series order with one of the major networks. And that was an example of where they had an idea for in a genre, which is pretty well known, but they didn't really have enough format around it to make it interesting or different. So the development team came up with some stuff, which I helped them rework a little bit, and then that runs through Mark, and then it gets pitched back to Fox, and I go, aha, that's it. And then you go, typically with reality, you you don't, you can't pilot, you can pilot uh, follow docs like, you know, uh, the Kardashians. If you wanted to follow somebody around with a camera and do a show about it, you can do that as a pilot. You can't do that with Survivor because it's an arced series. It needs, it has a, it has a process that it goes through an arc of storytelling. So the kind of formatted reality series that we do are straight to series orders, which means they're expensive. Um, budgets could be anywhere for network from a million to a tick under $2 million an hour. So if you order 26 hours, you're talking about 25, $26 million, you know, out the door and they don't know what they've got. Not to mention all the real estate that you occupy, right? Because on a television network, what do they sell? Ad time. Well, if you go straight to series, that's a, tr- that's 10 hours of their primetime schedule that they could sell to somebody else and you're buying it. So they get very worked up about that kind of a thing. And, and rightly so. It's an important part of the process. Um... Uh, so reality kind of works, the formatted reality <laughs> business kind of works in, in that fashion. There are some, buy- like Netflix won't buy re- formatted reality. They'll buy documentaries, um, they'll obviously buy scripted, but because of the way they drop their programming kind of all at once for the binge viewers among us, which is probably everybody in this room, myself included, you don't watch the voice that way. It needs to space out over time, so there's a sense of a drama as you follow people over a course of time and see what happens to them. Uh, Nobody has yet figured out a formatted reality show that will work in a, in a binge-watched environment. So that will be something. If anybody's got a great idea, that pitch I will take later.
1: Uh, <laughs> Careful.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. no, we'll, we'll, we'll have an organized process. Um, and then the brand business, look, what's really interesting now, and this is something everybody should get used to, I think, and you guys probably already know this to some extent, um, the, the the conventional advertising model on television... Everybody will tell you it's broken. It's not broken. It just doesn't work very well anymore, right? How many people here don't have television other than like a Netflix thing? Does anybody watch? Yeah. I mean, you just scatter around, right? Because I mean, you don't care. You don't want to sit there and watch that ad load. There are, ne- there are cable half hours that are now 19 minutes of content and 11 minutes of ad time. Who's going to watch that? And First of all, how much story can you tell in 19 minutes? You might as well just be doing you know, a three-minute you know, webisode as much as it but it's it's an awful viewer experience and what happens is is their ad revenue goes down they start losing money so their response is not make better stuff it's let's put more ad time in this sh- bad stuff that we're already making to try to get more money which of course feeds into the cycle because then fewer people want to watch the thing because it's such a miserable experience so their ad revenue and so it, it's it's a dis- it's a self-destructive cycle it's what um, it's sort of what the packaged goods companies did with the music business uh, in the face of Napster some years ago, which was probably pre a lot of you. But um, their, you know, record businesses were. You know, that's how David Geffen became a multi billionaire. Was basically starting and selling record companies, right? I mean, it's a big business, uh, and it basically disappeared for a while. And coming back in pieces now. So the advertisers have to spend their money someplace else because they still have products to sell, and they still need to reach all of us to try to get us on their side about their product. So what's increasingly happening, and this will happen more and more in the digital, or what we sometimes call the nonlinear world, although everything's linear at the end of the day, um, advertisers are simply paying for content that they think is illustrative of their brand. So I'll give you a for instance. There's a company we're starting to do some business with, uh, that's a digital publisher. And if these, if this jargon doesn't make sense, stop me and I'll... <laughs> but I think you guys are probably all using this terminology anyway. So there's this digital publisher called Woven. And Woven runs a couple of o os which are their or websites that they own, like... Um, uh, oh, God, I'm blanking on names now. And then they have a network of affiliated sites that they publish their content through. <coughs> Woven did a really interesting piece for Coors Beer that was about... Um, I forget what they called it exactly, but it was basically about American originals. It was about people in America who make stuff in a, in bespoke fashion. So the one that I saw, which I loved, was about this kid who's the youngest penman in the world. There are literally penmen, master pen... You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I've seen that one. You've seen that one? What did you think? He's the youngest penman in the world. Yeah, yeah. What did you think? It was very interesting. Who sponsored it? Coors. Because I just told you. Did you ever see a Coors bottle in it? I did not. Did you see the Coors name mentioned? It was probably at the beginning. It wasn't. And they underwrote a whole series of these things specifically because they're trying to find people to put forward as creators of kind of differentiated products because that's how they see themselves. So there is one shot that takes about a second in that piece where there's two people sitting at a table like this and there's a Coors bottle labeled to the camera. But it's sitting over here in the corner. You you barely see it, right? And Coors underwrote a lot of money for that. So for everybody that wants to be a storyteller in the modern world, in the digital world, become a student of and a friend of brands. Because that's where the money comes from. And the last time I checked, it's not show fun, it's show business. So if everybody wants to make <laughs> a living and pay the mortgage and have a car, you know, pay the car payment and stuff, you have to make some money. Right? You have to do something. And if you want to be a storyteller, the platforms for storytelling are increasingly going to be brand supported content delivered to the customer in an over the top internet driven way. It's not the whole future. The networks aren't going away. They're not, none of that's going to disappear. It's changing. It's not going to disappear. But brands are where a lot of the interesting storytelling is going to happen. And don't think for a minute that it's all you have to sit there and do. Hi, I'm, you know, I, I'm the master penman. I'm going to draw a picture of this Coors bottle here by my head. It do, it's not going to work that way at all. In fact, that stuff is failing. And the brands all know it. So they're increasingly turning to publishers that have endemic audiences like Awesomeness TV if you're trying to reach teenage girls or Maker Studios if you want to be out there in front of the gamer communities. And they're talking to these publishers saying, how do I talk to your audience? What authentic feeling stories can I tell? Because let's face it, we're all the audience. We all know when people are bullshitting us. We can tell, and we don't like it, right? But on the other hand, you can do a thing like our... We have a unit that does digital, digital production for us, and including has, we have people here in Austin who do it. And the Austin team did a thing for Facebook, which is a huge video publisher. They're telling stories left, right, and center. We did a a series of uh, branded videos for Kleenex. And, of course, what we wanted was stories that would make people cry, right? Because that's what you need a Kleenex for is when when you cry. And the Austin team found a great story about a boy and his dog, and they're both in wheelchairs. Yeah, right? That face you made right there, that's exactly what you get. (laughs) They're both in wheelchairs. Look up boy dog wheelchair. Google it. (laughs) Video of a boy and his dog, and they're both in wheelchairs. And it's the story of this guy, who kind of rescued himself by rescuing this dog. And their little dog has a little wheelchair. He rolls around the wheelchair. 54 million views in three months. I mean, Kleenex couldn't be happier. And other than the fact that you see a Kleenex box in it once in a while, there's no. And Kleenex is great. There's nobody shelling Kleenex. It speaks to their brand, and it tells a great story, and that's what brands want to be affiliated with.
1: Do the, Sorry. Uh, oh no no it's great. This is the
2: future, so you get, <laughs> either get on board or you can you know you can miss out. So.
1: Do advertisers have a different degree of input on the digital content side versus the linear content? With the rea- how does it work? With yeah, the reality that, shows?
2: It, it it does. They do, and that's part of the problem. Currently, the way TV gets sold. Everybody know what an upfront is? study that stuff. Lots of puzzled faces. Okay, the upfronts are where. Literally, TV networks go and sell their advertising inventory up front of the season. So, every roughly April through June, there's a series of upfronts where the networks and the cable companies, and now the new fronts where the digital publishers go and so on. But anything that's a, a something front and upfront, the new front, the digital front, all these things, is basically people trying to pre sell their advertising inventory, right? And so, what would happen is networks take their fall lineup to the upfronts and Advertisers buy through their media agencies, buy buy various pieces of time on the various networks, and then some months later, in September, the shows come on the air. Most of them fail. The advertisers are disappointed, and then you wash, rinse, repeat the next you know next May. And this that was the way of it for years. The, you know, the Mad Men era. That's where all this stuff basically started, and has continued forward, sort of uninterrupted until. I mean, there's still upfronts, and there's still a big deal, and a lot of them. Most the bulk of the money still gets spent there. What's happening now, though, is advertisers are super unhappy with that model because they get force-fed a bunch of content that they have no control over. Coors doesn't... I mean, there's network limitations on alcohol advertising, obviously, but Coors doesn't get to pick the boy boy and his dog in the wheelchair, Kleenex, right? So they just get this stack of stuff, and their media agencies as intermediaries have to decide what they're going to do. Now, they can actually sit there in the room... And, and we're doing it right now. We're doing it with there's a media there's an advertising agency. I don't know how much you guys study the ad agencies, but there's Omnicom and Publicis. They all seem to be owned by the French for some reason. I'm not sure why. But in any event, there's major ad companies that in turn own most of the smaller advertising agencies in America. We're doing a thing right now where we're meeting with Omnicom and some of the others and talking with them about the kind of content we're developing and they're putting us right with their brands, and the brands will start to underwrite that content, and then we'll go figure out the distribution solution, be it digital or linear or cross-platform. So brands, to your, to your question, are much more connected to and involved with the creative process now, and they're hand-picking the stuff they want, and they feel very empowered by it, as well they should, because the old system, which is not the most efficient, isn't really carrying the day anymore because the 15s and 30s, you know, 30-second spots and 15-second spots, or the spots and dots as they're known to some in the ad trade, that business is just going downhill.
1: Yeah, I was curious uh, in part because I know that Mark Burnett and Survivor and so many of the shows have been so instrumental in in integrating advertising from the outset. And so I'm curious if, if any of those processes that have been done in unscripted for TV have translated at all.
2: Yeah, well, the main thing that's translated is Mark has a well-deserved reputation for treating brands appropriately and delivering quality content that nevertheless has a brand influence in it, right? So they like the content. People, like, The Voice is a good example. It's, you know, I don't know if people watch or not, but it's a good show. It it engages an audience. It's nicely co-viewed. Shark Tank's the same way. Co-viewing means parents and kids watching together. The co-viewing numbers on Shark Tank are off the hook. Demographically gender demos, age demos, COVID. I mean, it's a family show. And literally, people come up to me. I've had parents come up to me and say, I watch that show with my kids, and that's how we talk about business, and that's how they learn about entrepreneurialism and all that stuff. So it's brands know that we have that capability, and consequently, they know they're going to be treated the right way and treated in, in a way that um, reflects well on the brand. Because ultimately, you can make a mess of something if you're not careful you know, careful
1: thanks I, I know that there's been a lot of talk about uh, unscripted not having a large sort of afterlife right and I'm curious if you find that to be the case with what content you manage or how it circulates beyond the us that sort of thing
2: there's so there's two ways to basically think broadly speaking and again we're talking about mostly about kind of traditional content I'm, we'll leave you know digital short form content off to the side for a second um Scripted content doesn't rerun very well. There are a few shows where repeats work, but for the most part, nobody watches a repeat of Survivor. The first Survivor came out in 2000, so that's 15 years ago. 72 million people watched the finale of that show. Now, that's Super Bowl numbers now. Nobody comes close to that anymore. So CBS got all happy. They cranked out a bunch of DVDs of the first season of Survivor, and they sold about four of them. <laughs> and nobody could figure out why. Right? Because it's a narrative arc. There's an arc to it. But for some reason, it's the immediacy of the reveal of the winner. And once that's gone, I kind of liken it to bubble gum. Right? Once the sugar's gone, you can keep chewing it, but you kind of need another piece right away. <laughs> it, 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 it's not. I, I don't mean to suggest that it's lightweight, but it just, it's a different audience satisfaction. So scripted has a, sh- a long-tail afterlife in repeats. You can sell scripted from now till doomsday. I mean, there's still I Love Lucy reruns and stuff from the 50s on the air that people watch. I mean, they actually consume it. Where, where Unscripted has its, its afterlife is primarily in format licensing. So, for example, the owner of the voice format, which is a guy named John DeMall and his company called Talpa, they actually created the show in Holland. Um, and John's a billionaire. He created a company called Endemol and sold it to a banking consortium for like 3 or $4 billion. And he reinvested some of that money. He basically has 50 development people in a room in Holland, and they just crank out shows. And then he made a deal with the Dutch TV network, to put those shows on the air for the sole purpose of having tape to bring to America to show to American executives, hey, here, this show works. You should watch this because uh, it's hard for American executives to greenlight stuff. We, you know That's why you get all the comic book movies and remakes and stuff like that because th- there's, there's brand equity already built up in it, right? Um, that show, they license the format of The Voice as we do with The Apprentice, for example. We license The Apprentice format in probably 30, 40 countries, and it's a very lucrative business. It's incredibly lucrative for the voice. The voice China is a huge moneymaker. You have to adapt the formats and play around with them to localize them a little bit. So scripted, the long tail is in repeats and replays. Um, For unscripted, the long tail is in international format licensing. So it's a different kind of a business model.
1: That's really helpful. Um, I want to go back to the digital content a little bit. Um, Are there particular parameters you see in terms of length or budget or... how wild west is it
2: a hundred percent getting getting wilder not less wild um as there's all kinds of interesting little wars going on so netflix kind of set the tone for original what phrase do you guys use over the top is that a phrase that gets used yeah. a lot everybody know what that is they've so, heard it a lot okay so <laughs> as we all do now which is weird because broadcast is the most over-the-top thing there is, right? NBC goes over the top of everything. I need an internet connection to get an OTT signal like Netflix, so I've never understood where the phrase came I know where the phrase came from, allegedly, but... Anyway, so Netflix kind of set the standard with the House of Cards deal, but they made such a favorable deal for the producers, and they will never make that deal again, nor should they, right? So most people, a lot of people five years ago thought of digital content, and they thought of digital shorts. YouTube, two and a half to three minutes long... Some kid in their bedroom telling a funny story. I mean, you know, just it's kind of like this throwaway stuff. Now, some of it's way better than that, but that was sort of one view of it. Digital content now is being budgeted all over the place. You can still get some very good budget numbers from, and I'm just talking about domestic-based entities now, you know, Amazon, Hulu, to some extent Voodoo and Crackle, Netflix, obviously. There's, there, you can get good budgets. You can make good stuff with those, with those numbers. Um, the format, you know, people are kind of used to 45-minute hours, 50-minute hours, even HBO, which doesn't have to do anything. I don't know. Did, did anybody watch HBO series, House of Cards, G- uh, Game of Thrones, rather, for example? Those are going to run between 54 and 58 minutes. You know, everybody's used to it. It's like a psychiatrist, right? Every hour lasts about 50 minutes, uh, which is about the network load, too. About a, <laughs> network standards, about 44, 45 minutes to the hour. Um, why? Uh, people are just used to it. Um, so you're still getting ranges from from uh, much smaller units, often produced at very low dollars, uh, to you know sort of stand- you know, full blown movies, film premieres on Netflix and so on. So the great thing about the over the top world is there's no standards and practices like there isn't network. So you know if you want to say a bad word or you know show a body part, you're free to do it because it's like pay cable. Um, and the budgets are only constrained by the appetite of the buyer and how they think it's going to translate to their audience and what their business model is. It makes a little bit of a difference whether something is ad-supported like uh, the basic Hulu platform or pure SVOD subscription video on demand, a pure SVOD play like Netflix. You know, there's different latitudes there. So, and the, and the best part of it is there's we used to sell to four buyers. There were four major TV networks. Those were our four buyers. There's 54 buyers now, um, the advent of the digital media services has been a boon to storytellers because there's so much more real estate to populate. And they all, everybody needs something. And brands are now shifting to becoming their own publishers. They want to be their own channels effectively. You'll see that with Red Bull. You'll see it with, eventually with companies like GoDaddy, I think, um, and any number of others.
1: Yeah, I, I guess to follow up on that, who do you think is doing interesting work in the digital space beyond the sort of obvious players of the Netflixes and Amazons? Are there more niche companies that you think are doing interesting things?
2: Yeah, some of the – look, Vice is probably the best example, um, uh, at least the most notorious one, in part because they have a kind of a cool name and in part because they've now migrated some of their content branding onto more conventional services like HBO – um, there's a there's a uh, woven who we talked to as I mentioned is another good one. Complex does good work. Uh, 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 Awesomeness TV is you know going to be out in front of a lot of interesting. I mean there's just there's there's gobs of them. Uh, Refinery Twenty Nine. I could probably list, if I sat down and just really thought about it. Uh, it's if,
1: good for them to hear names that aren't the usual. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, look, it's <laughs> real easy to say you know aside from <laughs> distinguish between. Uh, for a minute, between sort of conventional networks and true digital publishers. I used to use this line at these things where I'd say to people, did you know Netflix is actually just run by a Norwegian teenager named Olaf, and he works out of Oslo, Norway? And people would look at me, but for for a minute, everybody would go, really? Because you can't prove I'm wrong. All Netflix is is a big bunch of computer space, servers, a user interface, a marketing system, and bill collection. (laughs) <laughs> right? That could be run like anywhere in the world by anybody and 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 increasingly that's that's what you're seeing. So it's, it, there but what Netflix really is now is a television network. How is Netflix different than HBO? Well, if you use HBO what's what's the service called? HBO Go, HBO Now, what is it, which one is it? Go. Go. Thank you. What's the difference between Netflix and HBO Go? Other than what you see Get it right over the Internet, straight to you, over the top. Like ESPN3. HBO Now, thank you. Now, you're right. Go, you need this. Now, you don't. So what's the difference between HBO Now and Netflix? Nothing. Well, isn't uh, everything on HBO Now strictly HBO's booth? Yeah, everything on Netflix. No, no. HBO still runs licensed movies all over the place. In fact, interestingly, some of HBO's biggest viewership remains the movies. As much as they talk about the original series, the movies still really move the needle for them. It's a combination of original content and licensed content that you acquire for a subscription fee over the Internet. The difference between HBO and Netflix, therefore, is fairly minimal, or for that matter, NBC.com. They're all just networks now, kind of. And I don't say that disparagingly. I say it as a way to categorize them and how to think about them. Conversely, uh, Vice, Complex, Woven, AOL, HuffPo, New York Times, Digital, NYT.com, whatever they call it, they're more digital publishers. They're doing all kinds of stuff. They're experimenting with long-form short-form and branded and, 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 and unbranded. So it's just there's all kinds of interesting content you can do. So the great thing is for everybody who wants to be a storyteller, not every one of your stories is necessarily a movie. right? Some stories are miniseries. Some stories are, are long-form. Some stories are open-ended television. Some stories are short-form. Some stories, some stories, like the thing about the boy and his dog in the wheelchair... It's beautifully told at three minutes, and it would make you crazy at 33 minutes. <laughs> so the issue is, the, the great thing about it is now for the storytellers, it's figure out where your story fits the best, and don't worry about whether or not you're getting a theatrical release. You know, I hear this all the time from people that want to be in the indie movie business. Is my movie going to get released theatrical? And the answer is, for the most part, no. Right? P&A budgets are killers. Because remember, every time you make a movie, when... Uh, let 's pick an example. When Marvel makes this is a bad example because Disney has all the money in the world. But, <laughs> you know, when Marvel makes a $200 million Avengers movie, they 're spending another 75 to 80 to 90 million dollars domestically to advertise the thing you 're talking about being on the hook for close to th- a, over a quarter of a billion dollars before you know what you 've got. Well, first of all that 's a horrible business model. I mean it 's very difficult I mean it works great for them because, you know, because when it works well, you make all the money in the world. And everybody says, "Well, what about Black Swan? If I hear one more comparison of somebody's little indie movie to Black Swan, which was made for thirteen million dollars, it was released for ten to twelve million in P and A, it made three hundred million dollars worldwide box office. It's incredibly successful. And the number of those is about the same number of people in the like the app business who tell me about Uber and how good the, how much Uber's worth. So my app must be that. It's like, no, it's not because there's a thousand thousand apps that failed. So it's... It, the, I'm sorry to get off on a rant here, but
1: no, I, I appreciate. Don't, the give up your movie,
2: <laughs> don't give up your movie aspirations, but think about what is really going on on the money side. Somebody has to pay to make it. Somebody has to pay to market it. If they pay to make it, make it market yours, they can't do his. So there's a constant battle for mind share, for attention, for money. And if and if and and there's no, so much noise in the system, how's the movie marketed? How's it going to be? What's the awareness going to be? Who's going to let you know that movie is on? Who knows what movies are coming out three weeks from now? I don't, and I'm in the business. I don't have time for that. Most of us don't. Most of us don't care. We'll we'll watch some advertising. We'll get motivated the week of. We'll follow the word of mouth from your friends. Still the best thing for the movie business. So think more about what your story is, how it's best told, what the most efficient budget is, and learning about how to budget things is actually really important. What things cost decides often whether they get made and by whom. So the number of people that want to be kind of intentionally naive about the business side, ask, if all you want to do is write science fiction dystopias for, you know, for Leo DiCaprio to do, great. Go with God. Do your thing. That's a really hard business. If you want to create stuff and tell stories, do it lots of ways.
1: I'm actually speaking of doing it lots of ways. You were talking about thinking about content that works on multiple platforms. Yes. And I'm curious what that might mean. <laughs>
2: Well, the conventional thesis is we will do... uh, um, I'm trying to think of a good example of something that's actually worked, and I don't don't know that there are any necessarily. People are trying to do, like, three- and four-minute shorts that they can stitch together into 22-minute, half-hour TV episodes of things. Uh... Maybe. I haven't seen a really – there may be some good examples of that, by the way, just because I can't think of it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I haven't seen one. I haven't got one in my head where I go, yeah, that's the one. Um, and it, so it, it's, it's more about, um, I think, it, do, it, it cross-platform. Like, you know, a good example is this university, right? There's uh, a ton of stuff that can be done around the, you know, a televised football game, that could exist right alongside of it in terms of everything from, you know, real time. St- like the, the the university app that we have is just it's god awful, right? It's a terrible <laughs> thing. Um, but it could be a lot better. It could make for a much richer experience. I was at the Oklahoma State game a few weeks ago. Flew in for that, and it's like I wanted that app to turn on and start selling me volleyball tickets, right? Because you got a great we got a great volleyball team. I want to see that. I want to see some information about you know. Matt Scoggins and the diving team and Eddie Reese and the swim. You know, There's lots of stuff that you could do that can live on simultaneous platforms. So mm-hmm. cross-platform is really interesting. Taking something that's literally been made for uh, – well, I'll give you the easiest way to think of it is Facebook uses a test they call the three-second audition. If you show a piece of video and you don't capture their attention with it in three seconds, they move on. Because that's about how much time the average mobile digital video user is going to give to something before they decide if they're interested and will keep going. So it's a real challenge to fit the three, satisfy the three-second audition. Conversely, when you go to a movie, I might give it 15 or 20 minutes. I might give it the whole movie. I might give it two hours. So because of the nature of the way things get seen and consumed... I don't think it's natural for something to be made for this platform to necessarily be able to just be ju- bundled together and, and resold over here. Mm-hmm. It can happen. I just haven't seen it in a way that made any sense to me yet. Uh,
1: kind of building on this idea of how, how long people will wait with something, uh, how much is your company involved in market research or what types of market research are you involved in, and how do you think about the audience uh, generally?
2: Um, you know, your audience is your customer. They're your client. They're your consumer. They're your member. Um, Mark likes to approach things with three thoughts in mind all the time. Is One, does, does he like it? And does it appeal to him? Mark's got fairly, and he'll admit it, he's got fairly middle America kind of taste. So does he like it? Two is, do we have the budget to make it good? Because you can do anything with sock puppets, right? I could make a $20 version of The Godfather. It just won't be very good, Right? And the third thing is, how are we going to market it? And most producers fail the third leg of the stool because they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about who is the audience for this and how will they know that this is on? What relationally can we do to help create that awareness? So in a simple example, when we did the Bible miniseries for um, the History Channel, History hadn't done scripted at that point. It was an unknown quantity for them. They actually broke the Bible and then broke the Vikings series right on the back of us, actually, we were the, the Bible was a lead in for the Vikings, which never—I I was kind of amusing because <laughs> um, they're so similar. Uh, but but there was an example of okay, it, we wanted to make the stories, we wanted to tell those stories. We knew, we had we knew of a way to do it for the budget that we had that we hoped could be appealing for the audience. But the main thing is we realized you know there's there's influencers out there, right? There are people who have a desire to spread a message to, and, and if we talk to them and treat them right. Um, and and bring them into the process and give them a vested interest in helping us let people know that this is on. And we averaged 15 million viewers an episode for that. It was a monstrous, just a monster hit. Um, And, you know, in in the simplest example, there's, anybody know what the ADL is, the Anti-Defamation League? Uh, The the Anti-Defamation League has worked on behalf of um, Jewish populations in a number of countries, including this one, basically to, you know, fight the effects of anti-Semitism, and they had long come out. There's a movie called Passion of the Christ that a guy named Mel Gibson did. And it's, it's considered to be incredibly anti-Semitic. Um, I'm not drawing any value judgments on it. Mel Gibson's a great director, but you know, take that movie, what you think. The head of the ADL, because we showed him our scripts, we talked him about what we're doing, he said, he actually gave us a statement that said Passion of the Christ was the poison and what you people are doing is the antidote. Is how to make Christianity not anti-Semitic. Um, now I don't care whether you know. People, I'm not interested in anybody's. As Elizabeth, I think, said in the mouths of William Shakespeare. I'm not interested in making windows into men's souls. We did what we did, and we were proud of it, and we do it, we'll, and we'll keep doing more of it if we can. Um, but how you market it matters, because let's face it: if you know, if a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody there watching that channel, who cares, right? You can put all the energy and effort in the world into something, and if nobody sees it, next. And that's really a bummer. When stuff fails, oh God, that's brutal. But it and it happens. Everybody has failures. Don't be daunted by your failures. You'll have lots of them.
1: I don't know if you feel comfortable saying if there's anything that disappointed you that you you wished had done better or that you. Oh
2: didn't. yeah, I'll give you a classic example. So when after we did the Bible, people are like, ah, faith programming. Let's do more of it. So God is not dead. Made a lot of money. Heaven is for real. Made a lot of money. All this stuff starts coming out. So we thought, you know, there's a really interesting question which is how is it that a group, uh, a very small number of men and women can be in, such, in a minority group uh, under the heel of the most oppressive, dangerous, lethal regime in history, be absolutely antithetically opposed to that regime and become Christianity? How did the Romans not stomp the crap out of these people just instantaneously? Because the Romans were really good at that. And there's, there's actually a fair amount of interesting history, and it's not just in the Bible. It's like the Jewish historian Josephus has written a lot about that contemporaneous Josephus writing in the second, second century, I think, yeah. Um, so we wanted to do a follow-on to that to sort of explore that story. It was kind of House of Cards meets Game of Thrones because the real history of the Mediterranean at that time is fascinating. So we did AD for NBC, and we thought, hey, if 15 million people watch the Bible on the History Channel, think of a network. Well, it, it, we averaged 6 million people On NBC or like why now uh, the answer is nobody knows just didn't work so it didn't get renewed
1: sorry yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) onward and upward yes we'll keep coming back we've got a bunch of other stuff
1: do you feel like your company has a particular demo a particular brand or there's is there a certain type of content you generally tend to look for
2: yeah there's a lot of like I love Game of Thrones I'm a junkie for the books I'm a junkie for the series it's super violent. It's at times grossly misogynistic, although it also is kind of exalted because the most powerful figure ultimately is going to be But I mean, does anybody watch Game of Thrones? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. I love it. We wouldn't make it. Um, there are plenty of people who are making the dark, cynical, violent stuff. And there's places in the world for stuff that isn't necessarily dark and cynical and violent. Like, a movie we would make if we ever got a chance, like the paradigmatic movie for our company, would be something like The Shawshank Redemption. Because ultimately, if ever, anybody ever seen it? Oh, thank God. <laughs> um, it's a brilliant movie uh, written, adapted by Frank Darabont from a, a novella written by Stephen King uh, in a collection of short stories called Different Seasons, all four of which have been made into very successful movies, by the way. And the original story is called Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, But there's a line in that movie which kind of encapsulates it for me is when the uh, Tim Robbins' character, Andy Dufresne, is talking to Morgan Freeman's character, uh, Red, and says to him, hope is is a good thing, Red, maybe the best of things. I love that moment. And that's what we like to deal with. There's plenty of dark, all that stuff is great, good on everybody, make it, enjoy it, thrive on it, but there's room for people to want to occasionally be uplifted. Say, you know what, I feel great having seen this. This makes me happy. I feel positive. I feel hope. So we're trying to find the stuff that's good for co-viewing, for families, that maybe has a more, you know, upbeat message at the end of the day. That's um, why we love Shark Tank. Love. I mean, you love all your children the same, right? But there's some that really hit the note. The, and that's why like, when Mark got into The Voice, the first thing he said to NBC was, okay, on one stipulation, we don't go mean. American Idol already did it. Simon Cowell owned the mean music guy space, Right. And Mark said, like, "I don't want to do that. None of the judges did either. We couldn't have gotten, you know, an Adam Levine or a, a, a Pharrell or you know, Christina or or Shakira, anybody, if we made them be mean to people. They don't want to. They wanted to be constructive and help. And you know what? That's what the, that's why when you get that. Some people say well, it's a little boring. All they do is say nice things. We're like, yeah. What's wrong with that? Because there's plenty of the other stuff. So sorry, but that's a big deal for us." Is There's plenty of audience out there. Everybody in this room occasionally wants to watch something and come out of it and go, "I feel good." Anybody seen My All-American, the Freddie Steinmark picture about this university? One way in the back. What'd you think? Um, Seriously? Yeah. Uh, Weak, but inspirational. Fair enough. Got halfway there. <laughs> we didn't have anything to do with it. Actually, we were looking at getting involved, but we didn't. We couldn't deliver what we needed to in the time, so we didn't want to just glom onto to something for the sake of being involved. It feels very niche. It feels like it's going to be good for a niche audience in Texas. It's super niche, and that's going to be the problem, is creating the awareness for it is the challenge of the film marketers because people want to make Remember the Titans kind of. Yeah. But there's a good example. It's like I loved Remember the Titans. Um, it had a big movie star in it one of the last true movie stars, Denzel Washington. Uh, And I don't know if anybody ever looks at Box Office Mojo, but when you're thinking about your next film idea, think of the most comparable movie and then check something on Box Office Mojo for me. Check the domestic gross and the international gross. Because here's the sad truth. Domestic, remember the Titans did just fine. International, it flatlined because nobody outside of this country cares about football. Okay? And it, when you're making 60% of your box office out of international, if you want to be in the big movie business or, or the more sort of traditional movie business, for lack of a better way to put it, action movie, that's why, that's why one of the most valuable franchises in Hollywood is the Fast and Furious franchises because car chases don't need to be translated. No subtitles required to follow a car chase. And those movies kill it internationally as a consequence.
1: Uh, building on the international market question, yeah. so how much do you, or in what ways do you think about the international market? Are there certain territories that you prioritize?
2: Um, we think about it a couple of different ways. One is um, we actually do sell some stuff directly internationally. We have a, we're actually launching a format in China right now with Beijing Satellite about small businesses, <laughs> uh, which seems weird for a communist country, right? But they love it. Um, and it's less communist than it seems uh, in China. Um, we have deals in Canada where we do content directly with Canadian broadcasters. Uh, we have had, had a little footprint in the UK, but not gotten anything away there. Um, there are important things in the unscripted business. And well, okay, I don't want to get too too into the weeds on the details of stuff that doesn't matter. There are some countries where producers get to own the rights in the shows. Like, one of my clients when I was a lawyer was a guy named Aaron Spelling. I don't know if anybody knows who that is. But Aaron Spelling used to own the TV business for a while, right? I mean, he had a Love Boat, Beverly Hills 90210, and this one. I mean, Aaron had h- hundreds of hours of television he produced. And under the rules that existed at the time, the networks could only license the rights to air the show. And the producers got to own, like, basically the syndication rights.
1: We've talked a lot about FinCEN. FinCEN?
2: Okay, yeah. Oh, good. Thank God. So FinCEN still exists in some countries, including Holland and the U.K., which is why a lot of shows like Pop Idol in the UK becomes American Idol here, and Britain's Got Talent becomes America's Got Talent, and The Voice of Holland becomes the voice here, so because those countries still have FinCEN rules. And so you want to be producing in those co- countries if you can get something away, because you can control and monetize the rights more effectively on a worldwide basis. So we're actually looking, we, you know, we continue to press forward to start things outside of the U.S. in countries where the rules still basically function like, it's like a species of FinCEN. Yeah. So you definitely want to look at... Internationally, for scripted, you want to think about who your buyers are, what plays in different places. International co-productions, lots of stuff is being done right now in interesting ways, like there's a show called Versailles, which is being produced between, I want to say Canal Plus in France and, and maybe a German, like, I don't know, but maybe a German company, but it's all being shot in English and it'll get exported over here. That's what happened with... There was two Borgian series. I don't know if anybody saw. There was the Showtime one, which is based on a Neil Jordan film script we actually had when I was at DreamWorks that got converted into a TV series. And then there was another one just called Borgia, which is actually shot primar- exclusively in Europe. And then so the, the American rights were withheld by the producers, and they sold it to Netflix hmm. for a very nice sum of money per hour, by the way. So you, th- you have to think about international from a financing perspective. International co-financings are important. Production tax incentives are important. You can get you know, we're going to get a nice production tax incentive on A.D. We filmed it in Morocco, but all of the post and a lot of the development happened in the U.K., and Britain has reinstituted its uh, television production tax incentive, so you can reduce the effective cost of making something by where you shoot it internationally. Uh, crews can be different. You can work non-union easier outside of the U.S. There's a lot of factors going into it.
1: Do you choose to film in certain territories in the U.S., or mainly do you go overseas when you're trying to save...
2: Um, depends on what it is. Uh, unscripted, we will mostly shoot in the U.S., and very few states have a production tax incentive for unscripted. Um, it's <laughs> it, We're just not hoity-toity enough, I guess, for the tax guys in various states. Um, for scripted, you definitely look at state production tax incentives, but the main thing, obviously, is simply it's got to fit the show, right? You can the number of people who've used Toronto to double as New York and forget to, you know, that some of the shots have mountains in the background. It's like it's <laughs> unfortunate. <laughs> um, so we shoot, we domestically we shoot, we shot Apprentice in New York mostly, but that's where Trump was. Now that Arnold is the new Arnold Schwarzenegger is the new Apprentice, we'll shoot that one in L.A. So it's not just creatively driven by where the assets are.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So I know you've been saying that the independent film business is not optimal right now um, and features in general. I'm curious, uh, you know, what do what do you look for when you're developing features? Obviously, you're, you are doing a feature now. Mm-hmm. Do you tend to try to translate certain feature properties into Siri, TV series? Do you think that way?
2: You know, I, I think that will work... It, it depends on how precious anybody is about a theatrical release of their movie. I think uh, Amazon's piloting to Siri, pilot test to series business remains their principal business model. For, so essentially what you're doing is you're making a movie as a back, what we call backdoor pilot. Um, and if it goes, then great. If it doesn't, well, there's this mini movie out there and, and, and there you go. I don't really know, you know, once in a while you'll see movies come out of extensions of extensions as extensions of TV series. Nobody has really mastered the let's make a movie with the idea of launching a TV series out of it mm-hmm. um, that I can remember that's really worked. Certainly it hasn't been done enough to make it like a business model. By the way, never use don't use the word model when you're describing something because everybody says, well, I've got a new model for this. It's not a model. It's just an idea. Don't, don't,
1: <laughs> don't call it
2: a model. Um, so, you know, not, not exactly what, what we try to do is, and we've had properties brought to us as series that we thought would be better as movies and vice versa. We really try to think of where the best place for it to go is. I will tell you, the indie movie business, let me put an asterisk on it, the theatrically released indie movie business is tough. I think it's getting really interesting, actually, with the SVOD players because they all want content. They want something they can talk about. Remember, every SVOD player needs to promote things. Right, so if they can get a really good, you know, uh, use this bad example, but a simple one, a really good original horror movie. Imagine if Insidious was only available on Amazon. Right, well everybody, I mean, people that like horror movies love Insidious; they love the whole franchise. So if you can get, you can still do interesting independent film businesses as long as you're not all jonesed about, you know, the lights go down and there's an audience like this watching it up here. You can still do it; it's just hard. I, we look at it more as, as you know frankly where can we sell it that produces a reasonable return on our time because you're investing your life in this thing you know there's a lot of emotion it, I don't, do, does anybody here write like scripts and stuff any writers? It's hard, right I mean you're bleeding on that page sometimes It's awful and it's blank and it stares at you and you stare back and it's always winning. The blank page is always winning it's beating the writer every time. So by the time you're done with it, you're so like almost like used up. You know, Hemingway, I think it was, it said writing is a blood sport. I mean, it literally is. It's like killing things. Um, and so when you've done all this work to create this thing, you want to actually get something, you know, <laughs> you want to keep the lights on with it. So we're more interested in um, things that we find, you know, some, some if you don't want to do it creatively, don't bother. Once you've got it creatively, then it's, it's what I talked about before. It's budget and marketing. How do I get it budgeted properly and put someplace where I can reach an audience with it?
1: sense uh, Let's shift gears a little bit to uh, some advice type questions for the students and then we'll open it up to the audience. Um, first of all, are there any um, names or companies news events that they should be following or they should know that you'd recommend?
2: Yeah, I've talked a lot about digital publishers, uh, and I would uh, you should know who they are. You should know what they're doing. you should know what kind of content they're putting out. You may have an idea that you think is unmakeable as a regular television series or motion picture that might be nails, like the, the American maker story, like the Penman guy. You would look at that and you'd go, you know, if I was thinking conventional television, maybe I could do a little, you know, a ten-parter on, I don't know, you know, some cable channel and I might get $300,000 an hour as a budget for it and it's probably not worth doing because there may not be enough of that content to make 20 or 30 of them a year, you know. So you'd struggle with that as a television series. But knowing that there are brands that are interested in doing that and publishers who will distribute it, all of a sudden now I get to make this beautiful thing about these people doing, I mean, some incredible work. I mean, it's really amazingly artistic, beautiful stuff. So I would be... um, aware of, as I've said, for feature films, um, at a minimum, be aware of, the diff- of what matters in terms of domestic and international, because if you're going to make a feature, you know, tough to make the football movies, tough to make the movies that don't travel. Um, if you want to try... Don't try to make anything for HBO because they only make their own stuff. They internally develop everything. They buy almost nothing from the outside. So take all your HBO dreams and forget about them. (laughs) Unless you get a job at HBO, in which case, good for you. And make sure to be friends with Colin Callender and Michael Lombardo because they make all the decisions. Uh, And they do great work. That's why they don't need to go outside because they they foster great stuff. They don't need to do it. Um, I'd pay attention to what's working in the SVOD platforms. Um, Try to keep... Aware of what viewership numbers are And what seems to get, be getting picked up Networks will cancel things like that Like survival, Shark Tank almost got cancelled Because it barely rated you know. But because it was so cheap and it was Friday nights They let us keep it on the air And now it's, a, it's the number one show on Friday nights Every time it's on um, So the networks have a very short fuse SVOD players almost never cancel anything After the first season Because they don't want to admit that something's terrible Pay Cable does the same thing Dirty secret, don't mean this in a bad way if anybody actually looked at girls, the Lena Dunham show based on this viewership, <laughs> it would be canceled. It hardly gets watched. Now that's not because it's it just it doesn't have an audience, right? So a network would cancel that show, but HBO won't because it gets them awards. They want the awards, they want the accolades, they like the they like the association with it. So see what's getting renewed on the S five player, see what's getting renewed. Watch for renewals. I mean, that's what's, you know, that's what the, I know a guy that does a kid who started his television business while he was in high now it's a lie. He started his television business while he was in high school. He just finished a first-look deal with a studio. He's 22 years old. and here's, you know, he, He's like, look, I want to make all kinds of stuff, but as a practical matter to get started in the business, I had to make things. So one of the things I did was I watched cable TV. I counted a number of shows that starred guys with beards, and it was a lot. <laughs> so I developed a bunch of shows with guys with beards, and he sold three of them. One of them is now a show called Axemen, which is on cable. I mean, literally, that's what he did. He's like, hey, if people are buying stuff with dudes with beards, I'm going to do dudes with beard show. Right, me With the beard? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so some of it just being aware of what the marketplace looks like. Um,
1: Any publications or books that you think are good for them to follow on or read?
2: You know, I'm not sure I'm up to speed enough to have much of an opinion. Um, uh, That's okay. I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think of anything <laughs> that would be worth talking about. I mean, I mean,
1: we've talked about reading the trades with them and that sort of thing.
2: You know, the, the trades are okay. Uh, that's in, uh, you know I'd rather be reading com scores if you know what those are. Com scores are um, uh, internet view- viewing numbers. Like when people talk about the number of unique viewers they have and stuff like that on websites, that's really coming out of com score. If you can get your hands on com score data, that's what I'd be paying attention to. It's nice to know what's going on. No, reading the trades is good for just staying abreast of things. It's nice to be current. Um, it's not really driving the train the way some of this other data will.
1: Okay, so my final question, then I'll open it to students, is I know you have a law degree, and we've had students in here ask, if, should I get a law degree? Um, and if you have any thoughts about, is there a value if you're interested in going into the entertainment industry and getting one?
2: Depends on what you want to do. Um, if you want to be on the business side of the business, like I mostly am, which I find fascinating, um, an undergraduate business degree is probably plenty. A law degree can help. An MBA can help. I don't know that it's necessarily that there's that much ROI on it, much enough of a return on your investment to make it worthwhile. Um, so I would say probably less so. Uh, I had a guy who worked for me as a lawyer at DreamWorks for a number of years who uh, actually went as an undergrad degree from Florida State University from the film school, then went to law school, and he wrote scripts on the side. He wanted to be a writer, and he just wrote, wrote, wrote. We finally optioned a little <laughs> script from him Uh, For $10,000 or thereabouts, it was a WJ minimum uh, script option fee that we paid him. That option allowed him to get an agent at what is now WME, uh, which is run by a guy named Ari Emanuel, who's the prototype for Ari Gold on uh, uh, Entourage, for those of you keeping score at home. And anyway, so he got an agent, which got him a job at the um, Disney... uh, um, direct-to-video group, basically writing like Homeward Bound 9 sequels and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but he was polishing his chops and polishing his chops. And then he wrote a script called Bedtime Stories that Adam Sandler got interested in, and Bedtime Stories got made, and that got him noticed by Jerry Bruckheimer. So he wrote uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice for Jerry Bruckheimer. He wrote Escape to Witch Mountain for um, Dwayne Johnson. And now he's, uh, you know, he's a million-dollar feature writer because uh, he wrote. So... You know, my main thing about advice, if you're a writer, write and don't stop. And don't worry about whether it sells or not. Just keep going. Try to be sensitive to marketplace trends and be aware of what's going to capture somebody's attention because people are reading stacks of stuff, right? You know, your precious baby is one of a thousand precious babies on some D person's desk that has a million things to cover before the weekend. So give them something to, and Richard, you can (laughs) speak to this more eloquently than I can, but you got to give them something to go off of. So writers should write. That would be the main... And if you want to be a director, get a job as a waiter in Hollywood and network.
1: <laughs> um,
2: you know, that, that, a lot of it's just networking. You know, go to a... Don't, don't plan that you have to start where you finish. There are pe- plenty of people... You know, David Geffen started in the William Morris mailroom, right? Lots of people have come out of mailrooms. Literally, where you're toting mail from mailroom out to agent's desk. And then you get a job as some agent's assistant. And then you become a junior agent. And then eventually you decide if you want to be an agent or not. If you don't, then you get into management. And then you become... You know, Jimmy Miller, who happens to manage Will Ferrell, and now Jimmy Miller's a, you know, a good trillionaire guy who produces comedy movies and does a really good job of it. I mean, he really turned out to be talented at it. So don't assume that you need to start where you finish. Get in the door. The entertainment business is a very closed system, and we don't like strangers. We, the people don't want to lose their jobs. They don't want to give up their jobs to any of you people. It's, 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 a, it's a little club, and we're a little clubby about it. I say we. I'm lucked into the club. I Would have not gotten in if I had tried to. I, got, I sort of backed into it. Um, so give yourself time and find an entry point because once you're in, it's a lot easier. To, it's a lot easier to stay in once you're in than to get in in the first place.
1: That's helpful. Well, let's go ahead and open it up to the students sure. now. Uh, if there's questions, yeah, I see Josh's hand over there.
0: Um, I guess. How long did you actually practice law before you moved over to DreamWorks? And, like, what what were the benefits, if any, from, you know, getting a JD besides, like, the skills that it teaches? Um,
2: I was a lawyer from 1989 until 1999, so a little uh, 10 years-ish. Um, you know, the thing about going to law school is it teaches you a way the, – the primary goal of law school is to teach you a way to think and to be able to, to – keep constructs in your head, so there are lots of really good writers who actually are lawyers by training um, because, you know, I know everybody teaches, you know, we all learn three-act screenplay structure and all that stuff, but lawyers are really good at holding a lot of things and forming things into an organized system in your head because you have to. That's kind of what the job is, whether you're doing a deal or litigating a case or whatever. In my particular situation, I ended up doing a certain amount of... um, among other things, profit participation work, which was, you know, somebody gets a movie deal and they get a million dollars to make the movie and they get 25% of the back end after 15% distribution fee. You know, there's this whole definitional thing that happens and then there's big fights over how the money flows and everything. Um, So by the time I got done, actually, the the Katzenberg litigation I mentioned, how about this for a deal? Jeffrey Katzenberg had 2.5% basically of the adjusted gross receipts of everything put into production while he was at Disney. From 1986 to 1995, that included little movies like The Lion King. We were talking about hundreds of millions of dollars from that little 2.5%, and nothing but fights over how it was calculated and where the money came from. So I had a PhD in the movie business by the time that was over, and that has stood me in great stead because I fortunately ended up knowing a lot about how to how how the money works you know there's a line from the movie all the president's men which probably most of you haven't seen but there's a it's from the watergate scandal and deep throat said to woodward and bernstein follow the money i highly encourage everybody in this room to be able to follow the money if you don't understand where it comes from where it goes how it gets met how it gets divided up who gets what you're disadvantaged
0: it's perfect um real quick i guess does uh now that you work kind of on the creative side does legal thinking hurt creativity in all honesty
2: yeah, it does, actually, because one of the hardest things to do in Unscripted is to construct a format. It's easy for people to come up and say, let's make a show about cheese. And I say, great, what's going to happen in the third episode of the first season in Act 3? And they look at me and say, let's make a show about cheese. And I say, when you know, when you can answer the question of how it gets constructed in a way that's going to create drama, that's going to create comedy, that's going to create some emotion, when you understand how the format will go back and break your format and then bring it back, You'd be surprised how often. And the other thing is, I've said a lot of negative things. I'm going to say something positive. Everybody has, ha, can have an opinion, and a lot of them are really good. There is a story about the voice when it was being shot in Holland that it was a PA who was maybe 20 years old who said, wouldn't it be more interesting if the chairs were facing the other way when they started? Everybody's like, OK. <laughs> and that's literally where it came from. So the, everybody can have good ideas. So think about your idea. Think about how it fits in a setting, and then bring it forward. But yeah, definitely the, the 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 organization of thinking, it's a critical part of producing because ultimately it's not just here's this story. There's a lot of – anybody ever been on a, like a big movie set or a big TV set? Yeah, right? There's a lot of people standing around there, right? And there's like hundreds of people, and I don't have any idea what a lot of them are doing, and and it's – it's complicated. And so being able to take a complex situation and break it down into component parts, organize it properly in your mind, keep it flowing forward in a logical, common sense way, that's all stuff you can learn as a lawyer. Josh and
0: um, have You talked a lot about branded inter- entertainment and yeah. companies sponsoring what you're seeing. It, to me, it sounds a lot like older television shows. Like in the 60s, they'd sponsor something and throw that on TV. So what's the big difference between now and then, I guess?
2: You know that's a, it, that's that's an incredibly good observation. Uh, when everybody talks about branded content, new, new, new. Here's the thing: none of this is new. Here's a hint: every idea you've got, somebody had it before. <laughs> Gene Roddenberry was my first entertainment client. Gene Roddenberry created a little show called Star Trek, and Gene used to say, before he died, <coughs> that ideas are a dime a dozen; execution gets paid. And that's the differentiation. What you're talking about is things like Texaco Star Theater in the 1950s. Literally, Texaco, the gas company, sponsored this thing, and they would basically put on stage plays on television. So you could see the 12 Angry Men stage play on Texaco Star Theater. Shell's Wonderful World of Golf in the 1970s. It was a sports program sponsored by Shell about golf. Um, The answer is there isn't much difference. Um, The way it gets distributed is certainly different, um, but I don't think that's a meaningful distinction particularly. I just think companies got away from that over time. As when in the era where there were, you know, three networks, PBS, and maybe that weird UHF channel that you could get if you futzed around with. You guys don't know any of this stuff, but I mean, it was it was god awful. Advertising was a huge deal. It, it, Mad Men is an interesting show to watch to track the business of advertising through a period of time. There's a lot of truth in that show about how it ebbed and flowed. Um, so the short version is there isn't really a difference. Uh, it's, you know, everything is old, is new again. You know, hell, the vinyl record's coming back. People are now buying records on vinyl again because it sounds better than, than, than digital. Which is why
1: we want you guys to all
2: be history. <laughs> uh, hey, I, th- I think it was Santayana who said, those who don't learn the lessons of the past are doomed to repeat them. Um, there's something to be said for knowing what went right and what went wrong. And let's face it, especially in a feature world where everything practically feels like a remake, I mean, it's weird when you're, I'm 52, and when I just hear people come to me and go, we should remake some, you know, some movie from 1994, and I'd be like, oh, my God, that movie just came out, and you're talking about, but you can do it. Katzenberg has a thesis, you can remake a movie every 10 years, because the audience will forget about it. Um, I don't know if it's true or not, but that's where um, a movie called The Mighty Ducks came from. It was 10 years after Bad News Bears, so he wrote up The Mighty Ducks, and he got a, a hockey team named after it, for crying out loud, so... I mean, there's Jeffrey's a smart guy, so when he says something, I tend to listen to it. And I think that cycle is actually getting shorter. The more content there is, the faster people forget. That's why you can do. I saw your Daredevil thing. I'd be really interested in what their reaction is because remember that was a movie with um, Ben Affleck. Affleck. Thank you, and it was awful. Oh God, it was terrible, right? (laughs) Um, And I thought, okay, maybe that killed the franchise. Uh-uh. Smart people came along, and I haven't seen this, but I have heard they did some really interesting things for Netflix with it. So there's a good example of how there's a, a weak brand, Daredevil, damaged by an unsuccessful, I won't call it bad, I'll call it unsuccessful because it lost a lot of money, movie. Now it's on Netflix, and apparently quite good. That's very yeah, good. Have you seen? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So there you go, right? So
1: just wait for Fantastic Four in, what, a year now? <laughs> well... <laughs>
2: Third time's a charm, I hope, because I actually didn't think the first ones were that bad. The problem was they didn't have the gravitas, and what happened with that, I mean, look, you can say a lot of things about a lot of things, but one thing I'm pretty sure of is Robert Downey Jr. is a brilliant actor, and when you put somebody who's that kind of tortured guy, and he really was a tortured guy, I mean, he was a mess for a long time, and you put him in a movie like Iron Man, it has a different tone than if you cast it more for the comic book crowd. And that decision changed everything. That one move. Mm-hmm. It added an era of, of, of performer legitimacy to those movies that kind of didn't... And that's no slam on Jan Griffith, and who was in the original Fantastic Four, for example, or Jessica them. But it changed everything. I'm trying to remember. Did, did Fan, that Fantastic Four come out before or after Michael Chiklis was in The Wire? Or uh, The Shield. Uh,
1: like a year or two after, wasn't it? I believe
2: so. Yeah. yeah I, like, I, if he'd been the star of that movie, with that dark kind of really critical success thing, plus he was wearing all the makeup, so it didn't really work because you couldn't tell it was him, um, I think that was that was the money shot for that movie. And So it'll be interesting to see what they've done with it.
1: That's actually a really good place to conclude. Okay. Uh, I think we're out of time, but thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Great.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us for another Media Industry Conversation. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film and the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information or to listen to some of our previous guests, visit our website at rtf.utexas.edu/mic. This course was made possible with the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary, with lead TA Tim Piper, and the program was produced and edited by the technical TA. That's me, Kyle Rather. We hope you join us next time for another media industry conversation. We get along, there is a land, a western land, modern, wonderful, dear, dear. it is a land.